0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Johnson, and I'm here today with Andrew McEvitt, Assistant Professor of History at Louisiana Tech University, to talk about his new book, Consuming Japan, Popular Culture, and the Globalizing of 1980s America. Andrew, welcome to the program.
1: Matt, thank you so much for having me.
0: So I'd like to start just, Andrew. What I loved about this book was it's a book about globalization without this kind of top-down economic policy history. So, what made you want to write a book about Americans' encounter with Japanese goods rather than you know a trade policy history between the United States and Japan?
1: Well, it's a good question. You know, it, it this project started um, uh, about a, a, a god a dozen years ago now, uh, when I first started writing a, a paper in a, a graduate-level seminar on uh, Japanese animation fans in the United States in the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, you know, I went, to, uh, I went to graduate school. I started graduate school in, in 2002, I guess. And I was really interested in um, uh, the Cold War. And I was thinking that maybe I would do something... Uh, uh, related to like nuclear policy or something like that. When I when I uh, 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 when I went to study with a, a traditional diplomatic historian um, in graduate school, uh, I was very interested in like early nuclear culture and stuff like that, the anti nuclear protest movement. Um, and and early in grad school, I had I'd happened to to borrow a, a DVD from my brother, who's uh, he's seven years younger than me, uh, which in in like pop culture terms is like a whole generation. Uh, and he, he was a Pokemon kid. Uh, I don't know if you were a Pokemon kid, Matt. I wasn't a Pokemon kid. Um, because for me, I was just a little too old for it, but he was, he was a Pokemon kid. He's really into Japanese pop culture. And I, I had borrowed and watched this film, uh, called Akira, which is a 1988 cult classic directed by, uh, Otomo Katsuhiro. Uh, the film, opens with this um bird's eye view of of tokyo and the date in in 1988 flashes on the screen and then suddenly the whole city is is annihilated by a nuclear detonation uh and then the narrative jumps ahead and in, in like 30 years in the future and it's about these kids who get these like godlike powers as a result of government experimentation and these nuclear sciences and so forth it's very anime-like uh, uh, setup. Uh, but as someone interested in the history of, of like the Cold War at that particular moment, I couldn't help but think there, like, there's got to be something here. Yeah. And as a historian, I couldn't help but think there must be a history here of how this cultural text, this like cult classic film from Japan in 1988 comes to the United States during a decade in which Global nuclear anxieties were were on high alert, especially earlier in the decade, with the the bellicose rhetoric of the the first Reagan administration. And so, as I, I started to ask questions about that history, and I found that the the I found the the early American fans of Japanese animation, otherwise known as anime, mm-hmm. uh, and I talked to many of them. I started collecting many of their stories, and I collected their their self-produced materials related to anime fandom in the United States during the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, and so the the book project really began with my interest in their cultural activities. And what what became obvious very quickly was that these fans spread throughout the United States. People who who went to great lengths to get anime on on like underground copies of VHS tapes. They they weren't doing this because of Cold War anxieties or anything really related to the Cold War, but instead they were engaging in these processes that we we come to associate with contemporary globalization. Um, they were they were interested in they're interested in cultural difference. They're interested in anime because it's it's so different than the the American pop culture that that thrived all around them. And these kind of new media tools of the late 20th century, like VCRs and stuff like this, that it enabled them to, to build these local and national and, and even transnational communities based on uh, the pursuit of, of uh, difference and, and cultural difference in that sense. Um, so, so thinking about these kind of big narratives of the post-war United States, the Cold War, the Reagan Revolution, and, and thinking about how we talk about uh, globalization in the late 20th century, these anime fans didn't really seem to fit in neatly anywhere. Um so I became interested in in how anime fandom was embedded in this bigger story of the the global spread of of Japanese culture and and commerce especially beginning in uh, in the 1970s. Uh and so it it my interest in 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 globalization in Japan took off from there. Well,
0: let's let's talk about just how difficult the difficult it is to tell a story like this, right? If you were to do a traditional trade policy, you would probably go to presidential libraries or perhaps the national archives. How do you start researching a book
1: about Americans' experience consuming Japanese goods? Well, you know, it it did begin with that kind of anime experience, which in itself is, you know, I thought about the time that I was kind of creating my own archive. Um, What I did in that instance was, uh, you know, I I did interviews, what we'd call interviews, and I talked to people from that era uh, who were fans from that era. But the most valuable thing I did was uh, created a kind of questionnaire. It was very open-ended. And it allowed the anime fans that I had made contact with, people who were fans in the 70s and 80s, basically to write their story. Uh, And I ended up with, I don't remember how many people exactly I I had gotten responses from, maybe four or five dozen. Um, But when I added all of that up, that was many hundreds of pages of kind of personal testimonies about their own early experiences with with anime and Japanese pop culture. Um, So there was no anime fan archive at that particular moment. Today, there, there sort of is. I mean, there's a couple things. There's the the Fred Patton archive out at um, uh, uh, California Riverside, um, who is, Fred Patton was sort of the dean of American anime fans and science fiction fans for a long time. And when he passed away, he donated all of his materials there. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that that I collected myself over the years by making contact with fans, even digging stuff up uh, off of the internet, wherever you could find it. Um, Most of that couldn't be found in an archive. Um, So, you know, you're right in that, uh, especially foreign policy historians. So I come from, that's my kind of lineage in the discipline. I come from the background of American foreign policy historians or foreign relations historians or used to be called diplomatic historians. And today they're sort of international and they do transnational and, and these kinds of things they tend to be very focused on archives. They, the traditional archive, going to the, the national archives and going to presidential libraries is the way they've often told stories about how the United States has engaged with the world. Uh, I even remember the very first conversation I had with my advisor about this project, uh, when i said um uh yeah i'm i'm looking at these these uh these people in the late 70s and they're interested in japanese stuff and he said oh that's great well you can go to the carter Arch- the library and then you and i'm thinking like that's that's not the people i'm talking about um this is very much a a kind of grassroots uh from the bottom up sort of foreign relations um and so over the course of working on this project i thought about the many very different ways that that americans can Engage with the world around them. Of course, there are the very important ways in which the United States engages with the world in state-to-state relations, and engages with the world even in in, uh, kind of uh, uh, transnational relations of of corporations and these other big actors. Uh, But even on the ground, in in consuming foreign-produced things and consuming things from other countries, that is a kind of foreign relations. And and how can we write those kinds of of histories? Uh, And it is it is a challenge for each each. Each chapter in the book, I think, is organized around a different set of sources, um, a different kind of uh, archive, in that sense. Um, you know, the chapter on VCRs is is all I dug through trade journals and industry journals to to look at the ways in which uh, people were talking about VCRs when they first arrived and their their alleged Japaneseness. Uh, sushi, you dig into that by looking at. Uh, food magazines and food writers and the things they're writing in the 60s and 70s, menus and um, uh, cookbooks and so forth. Um, so you you just have to sort of get creative about what it means to look at an archive and not, especially when in a in a, a sub discipline that's often centered around archives themselves, think very differently about what an archive an archival source can be. Right so you
0: you decide to start this book in 1975 why why start this in
1: 1975 increasingly i think historians are are coming to see the 1970s as a a real kind of fulcrum in in war american history um i think a couple of decades ago we had we had fallen under the spell of reagan era hagiography and and this really accelerated after his death in 2004 2005 uh, this idea that 1980 represented some like true break in post-war American politics and society and culture. I mean, there's a lot of newer work, and I think your work falls into this category as well. And and I'm thinking of you know books by people like Jefferson Cowie and and uh, Meg Jacobs and Judith Stein and, and Daniel Rogers, among others, that has come to see many of the the political and economic and social changes we once. Associated with the Reagan era, instead finding their, them in the 1970s, uh, and so I say in the book, rather than thinking about the 1980s as an era that created Reagan, historians are, I think, more interested now in seeing the 1980s as in, 1970s as an era that created Reagan, with Reagan being this kind of stand-in for the shift toward you know, conservative politics and neoliberal economics, the emergence of the culture wars. He's a shorthand for many of these these different changes um, so at least at the level of like historiography in the the post-war United States that's the the conversation I wanted to um, contribute to um, now there, there's there's more specific reasons to start in the mid-1970s related to the United States relationship with Japan so it's a real it's a real moment of flux in this relationship the the various Nixon shocks as they become known uh, in the early 1970s these mark a, a turning point in the relationship that since the since the U.S. occupation of Japan, it had been defined by a security alliance in which the United States has guaranteed Japan's defense against Cold War rivals, at least since the Treaty Revision in 1960, and then an economic relationship in which the United States promotes Japan's very rapid recovery and its growing prosperity, even doing so at the detriment of like U.S. industries, um, with the aim of, of of securing Japan internally against. Communist threats, but also making Japan a, an exemplar of like what a liberal capitalist society could be in the Cold War world and by the 19, early 1970s at least that had it worked better than anyone had expected, um, so much so that Japan becomes the, the world's largest or second largest economy by 1972 or so, depending on how you measure these things um, by the By the Nixon administration, we get an increasing number of critics of US policy toward Japan. These are critics who are saying that the Japanese have had a free ride for too long and and importantly, they don't don't give up enough in return that their industries compete unfairly against US industries. They're, They're destroying those industries all while benefiting from US military protection and American economic generosity. So we see these criticisms in a range of industries. Uh, most notably, automobiles by the the seventies and the eighties, but you also see it in steel and televisions. And the biggest issue in the nineteen sixties, which you know, when you say like this is the biggest, most controversial issue in the nineteen sixties for U.S. Japan relations, everyone's like eyes roll into the back of their head. But it was textiles. Uh, the, the Nixon administration was just adamant that Japan was dumping cheap textiles into the U.S. market and trying to crush the U.S. textile industry. There's a series of years-long complex negotiations over this stuff. So at the, the presidential level, Nixon sees these kinds of debates as evidence that Japan had matured, that it was no longer this dependent client state, but a, a wealthy world power that it could survive on its own. Uh, and so uh, uh, he he announces a number of policy changes that shock Japan in 1971, 72, this is includes the end of the gold standard. This forces an immediate uh, increase in the value of the yen. Uh, there's a 10% surcharge on certain categories of exports. And then couple that with Nixon's announcement that he's going to go to China, which campaign, came as like a complete surprise to the Japanese. Uh, and you have in the early 1970s, this clear turning point in the relationship between what is the the world's um, two biggest capitalist powers. The last thing worth mentioning in that very quickly in that regard is the, the oil crisis of the 1970s. Um, the sudden the sudden uh, imposition of limits and American consumers needs to adapt to those limits to find or at least to to f- them finding the the smaller and more efficient japan produced vehicles um, uh, increasingly more competitive across the decade. And of course, that's going to threaten the flagship u s. industry, the automobile industry.
0: and you spent a lot of time early in the book you know, talking about Americans' initial reaction to all of these Japanese goods that start to flow into the United States. And one of the terms you use is the the Japan panic, right? And so I was wondering if you would tell listeners, you know, what that actually looks like and does that go away at some point? And, and if it does, when, when, is it, when does that panic start to go away?
1: Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, what you what you know and and what you remember about the Japan panic seems very much contingent on how old you are. So... So people born after, say, like 1985, maybe, this all just sounds like really weird and alien and totally unfamiliar. So the Japan panic is this its this brief, intense, but ultimately fleeting moment when many people in the United States were convinced that the greatest challenge the United States faced in the world wasn't from the Soviet Union or international terrorism or even a rising China, but from Japan. Um, Japan's remarkable, its miracle recovery in the 1950s, and then its its skyrocketing growth in the the 60s and 70s meant that by the 1980s, it's a global economic superpower. Uh, it's it's companies and their their representatives, the the iconic Japanese salaryman, um, they're they're stretching across the globe, selling Toyotas and Toshiba's and cars and cameras. And uh, so many of these other high-end manufactured products that make Japan the world's second largest economy. Uh, and by the, the late 1980s, especially, Japanese corporations are flush with cash and they start buying up lots of property in the United States. Some of it is, is iconically American. There's like Rockefeller Center in New York, um, uh, Pebble Beach Golf Club. Uh, even Columbia Records, so the record label that that puts out Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, it's bought by Japan in in the late 1980s, well, bought by Sony. Uh, so Japan's economic power and its its buying sprees that come as a result this provokes all kinds of anxieties among white Americans in particular, uh, and they have ways of making sense of that, of course, ways that they borrow from the past. Um, some of them. Reaches far back to the the mid 19th century to these yellow peril scripts about uh, an invasion of a faceless indistinguishable and uh, East Asians with their impenetrable alien culture and so forth.
0: You know, you, when you move from from the kind of Japan panic that you kind of set up the book um, with, you start moving into how um, Americans actually kind of experience Japanese companies. And, and you move into, uh, you know, a location that I would never have thought I would ever hear when I'm talking about globalization, which is Marysville, Ohio, right? It's like, how does Marysville, Ohio become such an important part of this book and important to a story about globalization?
1: Right. So, so Marysville, Ohio, it's a, it's a small town about uh, 30 miles northwest of Columbus, um, so central Ohio. Today, today it's about uh, 20,000 people. but the early 1980s, it was maybe about 7,000 people. So it's here in, in rural central Ohio that Honda builds the first Japanese-owned auto production facility in the United States. Uh, it, it opens in 1982. Um, Honda had already been making motorcycles in Marysville since 1979, but uh, the auto plant in 1982 is a much more significant capital investment. Uh, For years at this point, 1982, Japanese auto companies had been planning manufacturing facilities in the United States, and Honda is the first to take a leap to it. Uh, Nissan would do it a year later outside of um, Nashville in uh, in a town called Smyrna, Tennessee. Um, Some analysts, you know, when thinking about Honda, some analysts would say it's because Honda is smaller and leaner than Toyota and Nissan, so it can be more nimble when it comes to leaping to these sorts of risks and so forth. Uh, Honda says it's committed to building cars where it sells them and and employing people in the places where they sell those cars, Um, but they can also read the handwriting on the wall. Increasingly throughout the 1970s, Japan is facing criticism in the United States for selling so much stuff in the US market but buying very little in return. So we have these ballooning trade deficits between the United States and Japan which by the middle of the 1980s reach into the the tens of millions and hundreds of uh, uh sorry hundreds of billions of dollars. So the 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 ballooning trade deficit is on the minds of of Japanese executives throughout the 1970s. Uh, and, and manufacturing stuff in the United States is, is one way to work around it. In fact, Sony started doing this years before even in, in 1972. They start making televisions in San Diego. They open up a VHS cassette manufacturing plant in Alabama in like 1979. Uh, Honda, now Honda chooses Ohio. Uh, after Ohio's governor recruits them quite aggressively. This is James Rhodes. He's a uh, longtime governor of, of Ohio, the same governor who sent out the National Guard in 1970 to Kent State. He's still governor in the late 1970s. Uh, and he recruits, Ohio, or he recruits Honda quite aggressively. He offers this uh, sort of greenfield space outside of Marysville, which is in Union County, uh, without anyone in Marysville or Union County knowing he's doing that. Um, so the the governor's assistant rolls into like a Union County commissioner's meeting one day in 1977 and just says like Honda's coming. Here's the things we promised them and we expect all of you to make it happen. Uh, and they have promised them a lot of stuff. They promised them tax abatements and and sewer lines and road expansions, all of these sorts of things that become commonplace later on for bringing foreign manufacturers into these local spaces. Uh, the, the governor of Ohio promises much of that. And there's. There's pushback in the local community, but the the promise of jobs is just too powerful. Marysville, at this p- moment, end of 1970s, it's it's a place that's been hit really hard by the downturn of the decade. It's got high unemployment. The businesses have closed. People are desperate for work, and and that's what Honda is going to bring. Uh, and uh, you know, sort of a spoiler alert, but within a decade of of the opening of the plant, by like 1992, Union County's unemployment rate Uh, which had been in the high teens, it's virtually vanished. It's down to like 3%. Uh, The county goes from either the poorest or one of the three poorest in the state to the wealthiest in the state, at least in terms of per capita. Uh, And the Honda plant there is the largest facility of its kind in the United States, the most productive facility of its kind in the United States. Uh, And this is the first Japanese transplant, as they're known. Uh, that that transforms this town and more broadly the region across Central Ohio. By 1989, they've opened a second assembly plant just a few miles up the road from the first. Uh, they've also built an engine plant about an hour away in the town of Anna to the west. Uh, by one state accounting, the the 25th anniversary, Honda was responsible for something like 60,000 jobs in Ohio, either directly or indirectly. Uh, and in many ways, it's a it's a real Economic success story, uh, and it signals a, a major turn in the U.S. auto industry. Because today we've got more than than two dozen uh, transplants in the United States, most of them located in the South. Uh, the Marysville plant is is unique in that regard, and being in Ohio, um, uh, you know, of course, a, a major transformation like this doesn't come without its uh, detractors, and the biggest detractor is going to be the United Auto Workers, the UAW, the big powerful um, union that. Uh, you know, when the plant opened up in 1982, the UAW represents every single worker in every auto production facility in the United States, and they expect here too um, that uh, to uh, that the, the they're going to represent all of Honda's workers as well. Um, so the the UAW goes about the task of organizing those workers. Um, first, when the the motorcycle plant opens, but then more aggressively when the auto plant opens, and that leads to some uh, conflicts down the road. Yeah, I mean, such a those middle chapters are such a great
0: counter story to the kind of the typical story that I think of in the 1970s is you know a bunch of workers really, really mad about globalization because they're losing their jobs, right? Uh, and I mean, uh, you know, anyone interested in the 1970s need to, needs to read these middle chapters here because so they're really well written. Um, so why don't we move on to the the, the final you know chapters of, of this book where you um, you're moving kind of from American workers' experience with a Japanese company to Americans' experience actually consuming stuff from from Japan and so you focus on you know the VCR uh, sushi and anime three just very different products uh, and so, so why when you were writing this book why do you settle on those three three products uh,
1: well it's it's a It's a good question, Um, in part uh, simply because uh, I wanted uh, products or or Japanese goods that sort of stood out as um, uh, iconically Japanese. Um, But at the same time, uh, I mean, there's some sort of debate about this, right? So, you know, why. well, so there's an anthropologist who who writes about this about uh, a decade or so ago, uh, maybe a little more, a decade and a half ago. Uh, his name's Koichi Owabuchi, uh, in a book on the the globalization of Japanese pop culture, and his his rather uh, provocative thesis is that Japan is good at producing um, goods that lack a cultural odor. That's the phrase he uses: a cultural odor. Um, in other words, they they don't have a scent that is detectably Japanese. There's all these sort of weird visceral ideas I get when we think about smelling nationality or something like that. Yeah, I
0: love that term. When it, when it, when, I, when I read that in the book, I circled you know, that's such a, such a great term.
1: I know cultural order. but I, I also think it's a very fraught term. I'm, I'm yes, this, oh this, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, he's he's thinking of things like uh, like cars, and he has the the three C's. I forget what he calls them. It's it's. Um, I think cars might be one of them, consumer electronics, cartoons, things like that. So he's thinking of cars and and consumer electronics like the VCR and the Walkman. He's thinking of video games like Nintendo's Super Mario Brothers, uh, even Japan's animation. He says it's anime um, because anime characters are often drawn in, in what Japanese creators call a mukoksiki style. Um, which translates uh, kind of as as like one without a nationality, someone without a nationality. Um, so he says all of this means that Japanese pop culture crosses borders easily because it doesn't contain a Japanese scent, which is is sort of crucial in the post war era if you think about it because uh, you know Japan's J- the American market is really important for Japan, but more important for Japan is the East Asian market. And Japan does not have a good reputation for good reasons in uh, uh, post-war East Asia. So the ability of its goods to cross borders without bringing a Japanese "quote unquote" cultural odor with it is really important. Uh, and you know, contrast that with with American pop culture in the post-war era, whether it's like American films or, or fashion or uh, fast food. Much of it, explicitly or implicitly. Uh, carries with it these ideas we identify as American. Whether you know the Marlboro Man and the iconography of the American West, or the the hip cool of like Levi's jeans, or the even even like McDonald's fast food connotes this kind of you know modern fast convenient ide- American identity. Um, so, so I, I agree with Awabuchi to an extent that that consuming Japanese things was easy to do in an era of of, um, uh, of, of sort of conflict between between the United States and Japan, or or, or at least animosity, um, because you know buying a, a Walkman didn't bring with it to or didn't bring to mind these kind of traditional images of Japan. So I wanted um, several goods that kind of walked the span between something that seemed uh, that, that didn't carry that, that very obviously didn't seem to have any cultural odor, something like the VCR and some other things that carried with it notions of Japanese-ness, something like, um, sushi or, or something like, uh, anime. Yeah. And when you get
0: into the sushi and anime, you, you start talking about hybridity a lot, right? Kind of hybrid products. And so I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners, you know, what you mean by that term hybrid that makes it a bit different than the VCR.
1: Right. Yeah. I, you know, there's a very different kind of consuming experience when you choose to eat sushi or you even, I would say, and I think I would disagree with Wabuchi on this, that when you choose to watch anime, because there's, there are millions, tens of millions of Americans who buy a Toyota or a Honda car who aren't thinking about the japanese of that, that, that. Product when they do that, or they're you know buying a VCR or something like that, uh, it's a very different experience, or you're, you're making a very different consuming choice when you choose to eat sushi or or watch anime. Um, you know, oftentimes consumers did this because they're seeking some kind of authentic Japanese experience, um, and and this is what I write about in the sushi chapter in particular. Uh, the the sushi Americans ate in the 1970s was almost always a a hybridized sort, um, adjusted slightly or even to a great deal by usually Japanese chefs making food for Americans, thinking that they're changing the food slightly to appeal to American palates. The classic example of this is if you think about a, a sushi roll, the kind of sushi roll you'd get in a uh, uh, in American Japanese. In a Japanese restaurant in the United States, the rice will be typically on the outside of the roll, whereas the traditional, more traditional Japanese preparation is to have the rice on the inside of the roll and the nori, the the um, black seaweed paper, on the outside of the roll. The first chef who put the rice on the outside said, "Americans aren't going to eat paper, so I'm going to put the paper on the inside to hide the paper from the Americans." And so it's a it's a hybridized. Sort of um, uh, experience that makes it a kind of hybridized experience in that sense, Um, you know. But but in the nineteen seventies, food writers and and presumably many foodies of the era, they go to sushi restaurants in search of what they believe to be these authentic experiences. So, food writers would they they'd note that a restaurant had like like you got a check plus if you had like a woman dressed like a geisha. Or you had like paper lanterns decorating the place if the food was presented in what you considered these sort of uh stereotypical like clean simple um fresh japanese style prepper, uh, uh presentations, and all of this would would factor into their um assessment of the authenticity of the food and uh, of course it's its quality too uh you know as a as a historian i'm I'm less interested in in whether or not these things were were truly authentic but instead more in this notion of authenticity and why is it, why is it so important to people uh and initially that authenticity is important it defines sort of the quality and the experience but later by the turn of the century american consumers come to enjoy the seemingly off the wall hybridity of it all like sushi made with cream cheese and avocados and fried chicken and everything else that would have seemed like heresy to to foodies looking for that authentic experience a, a decade earlier, and that's you know that's undoubtedly a a product of of globalization, the the kind of mixing of cultural practices and tastes um, that that may offend people with notions of some sort of sacred authenticity. Um, but but I think it's all for the better, and the same thing goes for for anime for early anime fans. Um, you know the the, the fans in the the local and even the later the national fan clubs by the the 1980s um, the authenticity the the allegedly pure Japaneseness of the anime that they watched that was the thing that they prized most. Um, but I think today that that defines the kind of coolness of anime far less so than uh, for for young people in the United States today than it's kind of... Um, then it's it's general difference, and and in many ways, it's kind of transgressiveness, which is which is in part what the community has always been about.
0: Yeah, I mean when I read those last couple of chapters, and this might be just because I'm a very cynical person, which I wish I wasn't. But you know I, I read those last two chapters, and you know, I come to the conclusion that you know Americans just can only handle a small amount of cultural difference in their products. Am I just being way too cynical when I read, read those chapters?
1: Yeah, I think you're being a little, I think you're being a
0: little too cynical.
1: You know, I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious of this idea that there can be an authentic, like foreign cultural experience in this case. And like that, there's I'm suspicious of this idea that there's like an authentic Japanese-ness for Americans to consume. Uh, Cause it's, it's premised on these older 19th century ideas about like national cultures that they they have some essential characteristics that can define them. Like the Americans are industrious, and the the Germans are disciplined, and the French are romantic, and what, the Japanese they would have been like copycats or something like that. So we're still stuck with these ideas like 150 years later because because of nationalism. Nationalism is a very powerful force, and it it shapes how we we see different nations in the world. So I think it's a, a it's kind of a moot question about whether Americans can handle. Uh, like too much Japaneseness, because I don't I don't think there's anything inherently Japanese, or, or in, there's no inherent Japaneseness that any one person can consume. Because what does it even mean to be Japanese? Uh, it's a question Japanese have debated for at least the last hundred and fifty years, uh, and it's it, interestingly, it's during this period, the 1980s and 1990s, that in Japan this genre of publishing uh, really booms. The genre is called Nihonjinron. Uh, which translates uh, as like discussions of the Japanese, something like that. So it's it's basically a a genre of like Japanese exceptionalism and Japanese exceptionalist literature on what makes Japan so different and special among the nations of the world. And, And in its most like caricatured form, it manifests as these claims that like, for instance, Japan or yeah, Japan can't, Buy more American rice because Japanese intestines are different and can't process American-grown rice. Uh, there was another <laughs> another fight over. Um, uh, much of this ends up in, in trade disputes because the the, um, the American trade representatives are trying to get uh, Japan to buy more American stuff, and so there was a big fight over skis, over you know skiing equipment, um, snow skis, and <laughs> the Japanese argument was that Japanese snow is different. And American skis don't work on Japanese snow, uh, and these are the kinds of sort of absurd caricatures you get in this nihonjinron literature that comes out of Japan in the 1980s and the 1990s. But it it also it it, ha- it can have a darker nationalistic tone too, and that's the the that's the kind of nationalism that feeds off of notions of cultural purity and. The essential qualities of a nation, and there's this feedback loop across the Pacific because Americans are reading the Nihonjinron literature, which is the most sort of extreme thinking about Japanese nationalism, and they take that to be this is what all Japanese believe that they are a, a single God-divined race of 120 million hearts beating as one, and so forth. So I don't know, can Americans handle more Japaneseness? I th- I think they've a- actually absorbed a remarkable amount of it if you think about the way in which these two societies that have seen each other historically is so fundamentally different. Um, it's remarkable how much japanese we have in our lives that we kind of take for granted that, as I say, in the beginning of the book, we just, it's simply become ordinary in our lives. Um, better question might be why Americans haven't consumed, you know, just as much stuff from other major Asian countries like India or, or China.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that gets into the last question I have for you, because if you, you end the book by questioning how far we can take this comparison between Japan in the 1980s and China in our, our contemporary moment. And you have this wonderful line that I just like to read really quickly for listeners where you write, you know, the analogy between Japan and China fails to hold up in terms of the two countries' comparative global cultural influence. China simply isn't cool, at least not in the way Japan has been for several decades now. So I want to know, in, in your view, why isn't China cool?
1: <laughs> i i don't want to say china's cool i don't i don't want to say china's not cool i i you've got to read it in the context of the chapter so you know what what I'm talking about in that moment is that japan so Japan becomes a model in the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties this is 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 uh, much of this is about uh, i i write about in chapter one is is that on the one hand we have this conversation about how japan's a threat uh, how Japan's a challenge to American economic supremacy that perhaps Japan might even become a, a potential political or military threat to the United States. But on the other hand, there's this um, quieter undercurrent of of conversations about how Japan is kind of a model for the future. There's uh, a Harvard sociologist, Ezra um, Vogel, writes a, a book in 1979 called Japan as Number One. And the argument there is that um, better than any other modern society, Japan has solved the modern world's problems. When we think about anything from crime to drug use and and so forth, uh, Japan becomes a model again in 2008 2009, uh, except in a bad way this time. Um, you know, during the the 2008 recession and the aftermath of the 2008 recession, there's all these articles on how the United States has to avoid falling into the lost decade or the the two lost decades that Japan experiences this begins in well sort of 1989 but really is is at its worst in the the early and mid 1990s when the Japanese economy after the Japanese uh, bubble bursts in the late 1980s, early 1990s uh, Japan's economy basically has almost two decades of uh, flat growth. Uh, and in Japan, these are referred to as the the either the lost decade or sometimes there's there's two lost decades. Uh, and yet, despite that, despite these conversations about how let's not become Japan, Japanese pop culture remains pretty cool after 2008, and even to this day, there's big national conventions that celebrate Japanese pop culture. As anime, I was at Anime Expo in Los Angeles over the summer. There's 110,000 people there. Um, So when we're thinking about the kind of Japanese model and Japanese analogs, inevitably China is going to be coming up because for the last decade, at least, China has seemed to present the kind of economic threat, uh, if not this time, including a very real military threat that Japan presented in the 1980s. Um, I don't know. Is China cool? Do do young people in the United States want to watch Chinese cartoons or dress like young people in China? not yet at least um you know the more interesting case i think and i talk about this at the end of the book too is korea uh, and the so-called korean wave the halyu of of pop culture that's washed over much of east asia and southeast asia and even made its way to the united states in the last decades college students even here in rural north louisiana you know they listen to k-pop music and they watch k-dramas on the internet uh, and Korean pop culture has become cool in this in ways that that Japanese pop culture has been cool for a while, and China is not quite yet. Um, uh, and, and much on the Korean, for Korea at least, much of that is the product of uh, an intentional campaign by the South Korean government to support the the global spread of its of its pop culture industries, and it's you know it's banking on gaining some soft power from the popularity of its pop culture, even if nobody has any idea how you wield soft power once you get it. Um, uh, Japan's even tried to learn from Korea's example in that regard. It established like a ministry of cool a few years ago and dumped hundreds of millions of dollars into it. But, you know, at this point, 25 years later uh, into this pop culture boom, it might be too late to try to ride that wave. And, you know, to what end? How does a nation turn cultural popularity into hard power? Resources. I don't, I don't even know if that's a question China cares about answering right now. Uh, and it's never been an easy question to answer.
0: Well, Drew McEvitt, thank you so much for being on the program. It was a real pleasure to speak with you.
1: Matt, thanks so much for having me. The, uh, the book is Consuming
0: Japan, Popular Culture and, Global, uh, and the Globalization of 1980s America through University of North Carolina Press. Go out and get a copy. Thank you for listening.